Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Thursday, January 12th. Fresh off the chaos of choosing a Speaker of the House, House Republicans are getting down to business. How? By attempting to slash funding for the IRS. I can hear tax cheats salivating all over America from coast to coast. It is not a pretty sound. On Monday, in one of their very first legislative actions, House Republicans voted to rescind nearly $80 billion that had been appropriated for the IRS. That was a new $80 billion by last year's Congress. The funding was part of the Inflation Reduction Act and was meant to help the agency hire more people and overhaul outdated technology. Republicans have claimed that the money would be used to hire auditors that would go after who? The middle class. The Congressional Budget Office, however, estimates that rescinding the funding would add $114 billion to the federal deficit by 2032. That's because they'd spend less on the IRS, but also collect less of the tax that Americans owe. The bill did already pass the House. They passed something. It's only January 12th, 221 to 210, which means strictly along party lines. Now, with a Democratic majority in the Senate and President Biden vowing to veto the bill if it were ever to make it to his desk, it doesn't have much of a chance of becoming law. But it does represent the start, not the end, of a Republican attack on the IRS. House Republicans might even vote on something they call the Fair Tax Act. Have you heard about this yet? It would abolish the IRS and the federal income tax. A vote is expected on that at some point. With us now, Catherine Rampell, opinion columnist at the Washington Post, economic and political commentator for CNN, a special commentator for the PBS NewsHour, and a contributor to Marketplace here on public radio, to explain why Republicans are trying to rescind IRS funding, what that additional funding is for, and what might happen if they succeed. Her latest Washington Post column, maybe some of you saw it, is called First Order of Business for the GOP House, Defunding the Police. Oh, but she's got the word tax in there in parentheses, so it's defunding the tax police. Always good to have you on, Catherine. Welcome back to WNYC. Great to join you. Why do you call this defunding the police? Because um, what this is about is making it harder to collect the taxes that are legally owed. Um, every year, there are people who uh, avoid paying their taxes or evade paying their taxes. Avoidance is legal. Uh, evasion is not legal. But as a result, there is a large tax gap, meaning um, the difference between what is legally owed and what is actually collected. It is up to the IRS to try to bridge that gap and make sure that tax cheats pay 
their actual liabilities so that the rest of us don't have to make up the difference. Those of us who do abide by the law don't have to make up the difference by paying higher tax rates over time. Um, yeah. As a result of all of this, when you, as you, as you pushed out just now, when you give a dollar to the IRS, um, that results in actually um, higher tax revenues. So there's a huge return on investment. It's like there, there are different estimates, but like for every dollar, every additional dollar that's funded for the IRS, um, Uncle Sam collects an additional seven dollars or so. So these are the tax cops. <laughs> um, that's what it's about. Um, they are there to enforce the tax law, essentially, and make sure that Uncle Sam gets what is legally owed. And we'll get into the politics of this as we go. But the Republicans argue that they're acting so the middle class doesn't get picked on. Do they have a valid point in saying that the IRS audits the middle class and people with lower incomes more than it does the wealthy? The people with the highest audit rates remain the very wealthy. Um, however, the audit rates for that group have declined a lot over time. So if you look at historical data, um, going back about a decade or so, if you were a millionaire, you had about like a 12% chance of getting audited by an IRS agent. Uh, today, it's about a 1% chance. Mm. So basically, as the IRS has lost funding, and it has lost a ton of funding, uh, basically since the Tea Party Revolution in uh, 2010, as the IRS has lost funding, it has scaled back its enforcement, particularly on the ultra wealthy and corporations as well, big corporations, um, you know, those with... Um, whatever it is, I think the, the, the threshold is something like $20 billion of assets. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> they have also had their audit rates go down. And, and remember, these are the taxpayers who can, can afford to hire armies of accountants and tax attorneys uh, who have historically outgunned the IRS as well anyway, but now, they're, now the IRS isn't even bothering to try to make sure that they're abiding by the law. It is true, however, that there is a group of lower income taxpayers who do have unusually high audit rates, and that's hmm. people who claim the earned income tax credit. Hmm. Um, so this is a this is essentially a safety net program that rewards uh, lower wage earners for working. It kind of like tops up their wages, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, and the IRS does have very high audit rates of that group, not quite as high as that for millionaires um but it is why why would high. that be because those are as you point out among the lowest income earners in america because um it's low-hanging fruit so if the well-heeled have armies of of accountants and attorneys to help them those claiming the EITC tend to be a little bit less sophisticated about the tax code and and you know there is there are people who improperly claim it um whether um Deliberately or not, we don't know. Um, you know, the breakdown of that is, is unclear. But, there, you know, there are mistakes that are made, at the very least, um, among EITC claimants. And, you know, this is low-hanging fruit for the IRS. They, generally, when they conduct these audits, these are called correspondence audits, where they just send out a letter to the people mm -hmm. rather than devoting, like, a, a full-time IRS um auditor, agent, um, a, a special, you know, there are different categories of enforcement people. Mm -hmm. But anyway, rather than devoting a, a human to conduct mm -hmm. this audit, they send out a letter saying we need some further documentation. If you don't reply, then they might just disallow the, um, the claim. So I, I do think it's unfortunate that the IRS does have such high audit rates of, um, you know, the little people. 
Um, part of the reason they've done that, though, is because it requires so few resources on the IRS's part, and they have many fewer resources in general as a result of these funding cuts. So they've they've kind of shifted their focus more towards EITC claimants and away from um, those who have, represent potentially a big payday for the IRS because it requires a lot more effort from the IRS to go after the Donald Trumps of the world, for example, because um, you know they are well-resourced and um, can fight back. Catherine, on this complexity of auditing a lot of rich people's tax returns and how they don't have the resources to do that adequately, is it relevant what we learned from the recent release of Donald Trump's taxes, that they didn't audit him at all during his first two years as president, even though that's the custom and I think the law that presidents get audited when they're in office? Um, Because I've seen some reporting that suggested the reason they didn't even do it is because they looked at the complexity of Trump's tax returns, obviously a rich guy with a lot of different businesses. Uh, Is it relevant to this larger discussion about IRS policy and funding, or is that just a Trump particular thing? I think it's both in that, yes, when um, people have very complicated tax returns, and they are complicated often by design, um, right, to, to, to make it mm. easier for them to minimize their tax liability and to make it le- more opaque in terms of what they are doing to minimize their, their tax liability. Yes, those are the most challenging things for the IRS to audit. And they have lost a lot of their specialists over time who are qualified to do those kinds of audits as, you know, both as a result of the workforce of the IRS aging um, and not being replaced and those funding cuts, which of course make it more difficult to replace um, people who have been lost through attrition. So it is the case that, um, you know, the IRS has pulled back some of its enforcement power on these kinds of taxpayers. On the other hand, Trump is an unusual um, example here because not only were there a lot of red flags about his, let's call it aggressive tax behavior over the years, including things that he openly boasted about, you know, that he that he used the tax code um, to his maximal advantage, maximum advantage. Besides the fact that they should have been auditing him for those reasons um, and and had been some of some of his previous tax returns had still are still under audit prior to his taking the presidency, as you point out. The IRS's own policy is to audit the sitting president and vice president um, every year while they are in office. And for some reason, they, at the very least, dragged their feet in doing so. I don't think um, it's likely that that's because of resource constraints. I mean, I'm sure that didn't help. I think there's something else kind of strange going on there. and We don't know what it is. Um like I said, their policy is to audit the sitting president, even when there aren't red flags. You know, it's just a matter of basically since the post-Watergate era, this was a policy of the IRS so that Americans could be confident that their president wasn't acting as if he were above the law. Right, just transparency uh, for those right. in power, uh, the, the right. individual at the height of power. So we don't know what happened there. We don't know if there was some sort of um, political interference, if the IRS was scared of its own shadow. You know, maybe nobody leaned on them, but they were um, too tentative for other reasons. 
I don't know. Um, I, I do think that that merits more investigation why the IRS didn't uphold its own policy. Nancy in Otis, Massachusetts, in the beautiful heart of the Berkshires. Nancy, you're on WNYC <laughs> with Catherine Rampell. Hi, Nancy. Hi. Hi, Brian. On my second favorite NYC program on the media, every year they rebroadcast a program. It's okay. You can say that on the media is your favorite program. It's okay. But anyway, I'm kidding. Go (laughs) ahead. No, it's definitely my favorite program. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But every year, kind of as a public service, they rebroadcast a program about the IRS. And within that program, they tell you how to access the free file taxes. But within the program, they talk about how other countries instead of having their residents fill out tax forms, they either simply send out a bill or a check. Could our tax system be simplified in that manner and then hopefully save the kind of money the Republican are saying, Republicans are saying they are trying to preserve? Catherine? Uh, theoretically, yes. I think that would be a great improvement if instead of uh, taxpayers having to waste tons of hours and money if you're if you're paying for a professional tax preparer, um, getting your tax returns in order, that the government just sent you a bill saying, "Look, we have enough information <laughs> internally. You know, your employer uh, tells us how much you earn when they remit payroll taxes. You know, we can we can f- fairly estimate what it is the typical taxpayer owes. You know, if if you're just a do- regular W two wage earner, yeah, that'd be great. Um, unfortunately. Congress has not shown interest in doing that, um, and it would require <laughs> a a major simplification of our tax code because our tax code, you know, is is unbelievably complex. Um, even if you are, let's say, a typical wage earner, the government knows um, how much money you've been making through your salary, through your hourly wages, whatever. People might have self-employment income. They have, um, you know, all sorts of deductions that they might want to take. For example, if they own a house, the home mortgage interest deduction. Um, And then how does that square off against the standard deduction? Our tax code is so complex um, that it would require a major, major overhaul to simplify it. Um, And then it would obviously require an investment in administrative resources on the government side to produce those tax calculations for you. And I am just not hopeful that either Hmm. of those things is going to happen. Although it would be great if it did. You know, we have an interesting follow-up tweet for that. But before, and before I let Nancy go, Nancy, uh, I'm I'm curious since you're calling from from Otis, have you had snow up there in the Berkshires yet this winter? Um, We got a tweet this morning as the show was starting from a listener unrelated to anything about the IRS or taxes or the economy, but related to the climate. Listener tweets, New York City has gone 308 straight days without any measurable snowfall. Seven of the city's top 10 all-time snow droughts have come in the last 24 uh, 25 years, hashtag climate crisis. So I'm just curious, since you're up in the mountains there, but not too far geographically from New York City, have you gotten snow in the mountains this, this winter yet? We had snow the week before Christmas, and it literally stayed in the trees about the longest I've ever seen. Um, so it was that cold. But then when we had that thaw last week, mm-hmm. um, I think that's when it hit in the 50s. Then just the the ski mountains, just they couldn't keep up with the snowmaking. 
Huh. The trails were pretty clear of snow. But now, this week again, it got cold. And right now, I'm looking at snow as I look out the window. And the snowmaking machines have been going all night and all day. And um, I think they're going to be ready to ski this weekend. <laughs> all right. A good, uh, good report for the skiers in the audience. And to know at least it gets cold enough in the Berkshire Mountains to still snow in January, if not in New York City. Nancy, thanks so much for your call. Um, so here's the, here's the follow-up tweet that I had in mind, because you were talking about the complexity of mm-hmm. the tax code, the tax system. Listener writes, wouldn't a VAT, value-added tax on your purchases, with rebates to lower-tier earners be easier to police than just an income tax and the $30 trillion debt divided by the number of person years it took to build it to 2600 et cetera? In other words, to, to boil that down, wouldn't a value-added tax on money that we spend with rebates to lower-tier earners to make it a progressive tax be easier to police than our current income tax system? Um, in many ways, yes. Uh, well, it depends on how the system is structured. But um, in some country, most countries in the world, I should say, do have a value-added tax of some kind. We do not. We have other kinds of consumption taxes, like you know, state-level and local-level sales taxes. But most other countries have a national value-added tax. And they can be structured so that they are sort of self-reinforcing. So that you know, if I am um, a company that makes, uh, what's a good example? I don't know. I make toys. Um, the value added tax that I pay um, depends on what the supplier who sells me the, you know, the, the components, what they paid. So it's like, it's sort of like it's self-reinforcing in that I want to get documentation from the upstream guys to make sure that they pay their tax so that I pay less tax. Um, you know, if, if they paid $10 uh, per unit of, of, let's call it, you know, like wood blocks or something, um, and I'm in, a, in the, the price of the thing that I would, am, am making is $20, I want to get credit for the $10 that they already paid. So in that sense, it can be self-reinforcing. It doesn't require as much uh, government level enforcement, but you do obviously lose um, a lot of other policy tools when you switch to a value added tax. When part of the reason why our tax code is so complex is that we're trying to get it to do a lot of different things. We're trying to get it to subsidize um, investments in research and development. We are trying to use it to encourage people to work, um, to encourage people to have kids or to defray the cost of having kids. We are trying to use it to encourage home ownership. So all of these kinds of um, incentives and, and safety net programs that are built into the tax code are part of what makes it much more complex because it's trying to do so many things, but you also lose the ability to do those mm-hmm. very many things. Mm-hmm. So it kind of depends on you know what your preferences are about how the tax code should work. So on the politics of why they are doing this and doing this first, um, one listener tweets, GOP's IRS policy is entirely about minimizing tax on the wealthy, um, which implies that it's the wealthy that's their constituency and they're looking to protect their constituency. But maybe that's wrong or maybe there are other reasons. Why is this so high on the Republicans' agenda? Um, I do think that they prioritize tax cuts for the wealthy and corporations. I think they've actually been pretty open about that over the years. You look at 
what they did when they had unified control of government, um, their first or not their first order of business, but their their arguably biggest legislative achievement was a major tax cut that the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that was weighted toward the wealthy and corporations. Um, I also think that because there's so much confusion um, about how the IRS works and, and whom the IRS would go after if they were given more resources, would they go after the middle class, for example, just as you know, we've, we've heard from some of our callers, people who don't trust that the IRS is going to deploy those additional resources to go after the deep pocketed um, you know, real estate barons of the world. I think that it is a useful rhetorical position for Republicans to hold to say, we are protecting you, the little guy, you know, the honest middle class taxpayer who's already afraid of the tax cops and who's who's abiding by the law. We're going to you know, we're protecting you from IRS agents who want to harass you, even though you are, um, you know, you are doing everything honestly and legally. Um, so I think it is it is a useful boogeyman. Um, and like I said, you know, it's it's not totally unmerited to to be concerned that the IRS would not use those resources against um, the the very top of the income distribution or the biggest corporations because of some past things they've done, including um, deploying a lot of auditing resources. Well, relatively few, but like in terms of quantity of people getting audited, auditing a lot of EITC claimants. Mm. Um, so I think it's you know there's a there's a kernel of truth to that. So I think it's partly there are actual policy objectives and, and partly just about political posturing. Catherine Rampell, maybe you've seen her on CNN or the PBS NewsHour or heard her on Marketplace. And she's a Washington Post columnist whose latest column is First Order of Business for the GOP House, Defunding the Tax Police. Catherine, thanks as always. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.